Well, if uh, you come in after the greeting time, let me just say again, if you're visiting with us for the first time, good morning and welcome. We are the South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Uh, we have been looking in the New Testament at the book of Acts, and we're in the middle of a sort of an ongoing study there. And this morning, we're actually picking up at verse 12 of chapter 5, and we're going to work through to verse 16 of that same chapter. Uh, when we started this series about 13 weeks ago, I think, we subtitled this book at the time. Uh, we subtitled it, The History of the Ongoing Ministry of Jesus. And the reason we did that was because this book is the second part of a two-part work that starts with the Gospel of Luke, covering sort of the earthly ministry of Jesus, and then it finishes with the book of Acts, which is the second part and really covers the, the heavenly-based ministry of Jesus as it is carried out through the agency of the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers and impels His people into the world for the sake of the kingdom. So Acts gives us the beginning of all that, that second part of Jesus' ministry as He rules and reigns in heaven. The earliest days of the church. And it's concerned actually with, if you look at the, the number of years, it's really a fairly compact space of time. It's about 30 years that are being covered here, from about 33 AD to 64. And what we see in that very limited time frame is a summary of the church's expansion, starting with its establishment in Jerusalem, and then as it, seeing as it pushes outward to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And all of that happens and plays out just as Jesus told his disciples it would. Now currently we're still in that portion of the book that describes the church's initial growth within uh, the city of Jerusalem. And, but we will in just a few weeks' time, we're going to see things actually go to another level with the persecution of Stephen, which on the one hand is a tragedy, and yet on the other hand and in the mysterious providence of God, that tragedy actually becomes the thing that will be used to push the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and more importantly, it will push it beyond its Jewish birth clothes. So what's taken place thus far in Acts? Well, right before his ascension into heaven, uh, at the end of Luke, beginning of Acts, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. He told them to wait for the gift of the Spirit and wait till that had been given and that Spirit would come and empower and equip them to do the work and the job that He'd given them to do. So they wait. And after 10 days, in this event that we recognize as Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on the gathered disciples who then gave evidence of that when they began speaking in other languages on that occasion. In the aftermath of all this, and so that people didn't come to the wrong conclusions about what was going on, Peter stood up. And he preached to the crowd, and God moved, and 3,000 people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in just one day. We then read about further evidences of the Spirit coming, namely the descriptions of the life of the church as they lived out their faith in community, with uh, you know, people sharing their possessions to provide for one another, people sharing meals together, people praising God together, and seeing the church grow daily. Following that, we come across some scenes from the early days of the Apostles' ministry, which consisted of both the performance of uh, signs and wonders, usually miraculous healings and uh, casting out of demons, and then preaching, which helped people to understand what God was doing and had done 
through Jesus, as well as helping them to understand all the strange and wonderful things that were happening amongst them. And both of these things, the signs and the wonders and the preaching, were the means that God used uh, in that day to bring people, first of all, to repentance, which just means sorrow and brokenness over our sin, and then to faith, trusting in what God had done through Jesus to take care of our sin problem. Alongside all of this, and indeed because of all this, as the church grows and as the story in Acts develops, we see this progression, a steady progression of animosity from the Jewish authorities toward the apostles and their teaching and their ministry. A progression that we see uh, that's actually similar in pattern to what happened with the Lord Jesus in his own ministry, and uh, which uh, progression, which we'll see soon enough, is going to lead to outright violence. However, we're still in the early stages of that, or maybe the mid-stages of that, and to be sure, the religious authorities are already genuinely upset and angered by the apostles' continued preaching about Jesus. And further, they are, I believe, envious of their, the healing ministries of these apostles, and basically they're envious of their popularity with the people. Nevertheless, as angry as they are, they're still held partially in check from acting out on that anger uh, because uh, they're afraid of how the people might react to the apostles being mistreated. After all, these apostles are out there healing friends and family and all kinds of things are happening in Jerusalem, in the community, through the hands and ministry of these apostles. And so the authorities don't want to get the public too upset, but they're still very angry. So all these things are going on for which, and it's the crazy thing is that all these things are happening and the religious authorities see it happening and they've got no reasonable explanation for it. And yet, ironically, the things that they saw did not seem to make them stop and think that perhaps they are the ones that had the problem. Uh, Crazily enough, all these miraculous things that were occurring didn't seem to have that kind of effect on them. All it did was make them angrier and angrier. And at any rate, that's what's been going on in Acts. That sort of progression, that sort of pattern up to this point. And that's sort of the broad strokes picture of that. Now more immediately, uh, last week what he was uh, preaching, and we saw uh, he took us through the account of Ananias and Sapphira, who are two members of the Jerusalem church, who as a result of their deliberate deception found themselves on the receiving end of God's judgment, which cost them, sadly, cost them their very lives. And this, as Woody pointed out, that marked a significant shift in the church. It introduced something new into this story of the church. Because up to this point, the church had known trouble, and it had known hardship. And uh, and, and even in an increasing fashion. But... What they experienced to this point was all external in nature. It came from a growing opposition and a growing persecution by the Jewish religious authorities. But with the sobering and the severe discipline of Ananias and Sapphira, two church members, with this tragic event, the young church experienced for the first time a different kind of opposition. It was an opposition that came at the hand of God himself. Who was zealous to protect his own glory. He was prepared to take severe measures. 
even with his own people, at this crucial juncture of the church's history to ensure that the gospel work would be well established in Jerusalem and as a preparation for this big push outward into the Gentile world that's just around the corner. I can recall a time when I was a teenager, very involved in scouting growing up, and uh, one summer we were hiking along a pretty good-sized section of the Appalachian Trail, and uh, on this particular occasion, uh, my father was on the trip, and he was one of the chaperones for, the, for that expedition. So, uh, you know, there we were, all lay long, hiking along this pretty difficult uh, section of the trail with lots of switchbacks, that's the zigzag trails that go up and down. But, you know, everyone was, was doing well, we were good spirits, guys were talking and laughing and joking and pointing out things along the way. And I was hiking just behind my dad, who'd been going along all right for most of the day. But near the end of the day, he kind of started slowing down a little bit and eventually was reduced to a very slow rate of progress. And um, I was impatient. I wanted us to kind of get moving along the trail. And I don't recall exactly what I said, but I made some sort of comment at my dad's expense about his slow pace. Something I thought was funny, but which was actually not funny. It was disrespectful. Uh, it was rude, and mostly it was insensitive to the fact that, uh, you know, unknown to me, he had developed some very bad blisters that had become quite painful. And so my dad, in response to my disrespectful comments, he rightly got quite angry with me, and he bared his teeth a little bit, and he wasted no time in putting me in a place I needed to be put. You know, I was totally in the wrong, but, but that event drastically changed the mood and the feel of things on the trail that afternoon. My dad made it clear that while he was my father and he loved me dearly, there was still, nevertheless, there was a line that ought not be crossed. Somewhere along the way, I had taken the love and the freedom and the access that my father had given me I had taken those things as license for being disrespectful and for being careless with him. Somewhere along the way, I'd forgotten who I was talking to. I forgot the one with whom I was dealing. The God who had loved Ananias and Sapphira had died for them and set them free was still a holy God. And he was not a God to be trifled with. And when they did and God responded, it was like a sudden jarring north wind blowing through the camp that just sent this deep, sobering chill through the church. As Luke writes, great fear came upon the church. So all of that has just happened. And the verses before us this morning, 5, 12 to 16, over against all of that, are really something of a contrast. As one writer puts it, the juxtaposition of these things, severe discipline by the hand of God on the one hand over against amazing healing by the same God, the juxtaposition of those things is accompanied by the juxtaposition of different responses to God. And it is these responses in particular that we'll be focusing on in our time together this morning before we do, or before we go any further with that. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for your work. 
your work which sometimes precedes your word and sometimes follows it. But we thank you for them both as they are together the means by which we see you as the main player, the main actor on this stage that we call the world and in which you are the principal person working out your plans and purposes and bringing us along with you in that endeavor. Help us now as we listen with our eyes, as we see with our ears what you have said and are saying to us. By your spirit, give us understanding that would otherwise completely escape us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the passage to to you and before us this morning, Acts 5, 12, 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were, they were all healed. In this passage, and in contrast to the terrible tragedy that's just taking place in the church community, God's power and work are again in evidence. And this time in a more encouraging and positive form, as signs and wonders that were regularly done, the passage says, amongst the people, right? Not occasionally done, but regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And that last phrase, by the hands of the apostles, uh, is an important one because it points beyond itself, I believe, to the reason and the point of these amazing occurrences. Namely this, to authentic, the, the purpose, the point, the big picture reason for these signs and wonders is to authenticate the ones through whom they were occurring. To legitimize them as the right messengers with the right message from the only real and true God. It is to authorize their ministry so that their words would be received. Not like any other words, not like ordinary words, Not received like words you can take or leave on a whim, it doesn't really matter. But as words that come with the imprimatur and the blessing and the authority of the God who stands behind them. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews makes this connection between miraculous works and authoritative words. I think very clear. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This is Hebrews 2. Verses 1 to 4. We must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, that is, this salvation, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Right, so just prior to those words in Hebrews, 
If you've been reading along, you'd see that the writer has shown how Christ is God's final and sufficient word, and that he's not to be regarded as merely some sort of angel, but is in fact high and exalted uh, above the angels. He's infinitely superior to the angels. And uh, he's seated in the heavenly realms alongside God the Father. And then having said that, the writer of Hebrews, having gathered together all these majestic descriptions of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures, he now feels compelled to say something about the implications of these things for his readers. And in short, what he's saying to them in Hebrews is, because God has spoken through his amazing, exalted son, we must listen to him. Because it's God. I mean, the greatness of who He is demands our complete and undistracted attention and leads to a just retribution if we do not pay attention to it. Uh, I've used this illustration before. You know, I, I'm not a golfer. If you play with me, you'll realize that I'm not a golfer, but you'll feel a lot better about your game. And, uh, but I did, as a non-golfer, read Jack Nicholas's biography, and, and uh, there's this one point in there where he talks about how to do the right the proper golf swing. Again, I don't think about golf, but when Jack Nicholas says, let me tell you something about how to swing a golf club, even I paid attention to that as a non-golfer because he knows what he's talking about. And Hebrews, in a much more serious and profound way, is saying the same thing. And Jesus is speaking here. He's speaking. Pay attention. Um, but that raises an important question. Because, you see, the letter to the Hebrews was written long after Jesus' return to the Father in heaven. So, how does the writer expect his readers to listen to Jesus? And the answer is, the word which God spoke through his Son, that same word was proclaimed and preached by his apostles, whom he personally selected, including Paul. And that's what uh, Hebrews is referring to when it says it was declared at first by the Lord... And then there's that phrase in the middle. And it was attested to us by those who heard. That is, by the apostles. So to listen to the words of Jesus' apostles is in fact to listen to Jesus. That's what Hebrews is telling us here. And the Hebrews too goes on to say that one of the things that God used to confirm and ratify the authority and validity of the apostles' role in all of this was, as verse 4 tells us, the various signs and wonders and miracles that accompanied and surrounded their ministry. Right? I mean, these extraordinary events identified them as being with Jesus, whose own ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. And so by this means, by the performance of signs and wonders, it was shown that they had divine approval and authority to continue advancing the gospel in Jesus' name, and most importantly, to be the means by which God's spoken and lived word in Jesus became in time... What they spoke and said live became in time God's written, revealed word that we know as the New Testament scriptures. That is what you might say is the wider context for understanding the signs and wonders spoken of here in Acts 5.12. And it means, when you think about that, it means, amongst other things, that there is a uniqueness to this whole era that we are reading about and learning about right now in Acts. Right? There's a timeliness to it. The clock on this whole stage of church history is running. The very nature of these signs and the reason for which they were given ought to lead us to believe that they were not just going to continue in the same fashion for the life of the church. So that's 
one wider context for understanding what's going on here. There's another one, a little more immediate, a little closer to home, found a bit earlier in Acts 4, verses 29 to 30. It says this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. It's a prayer. We've, uh, looked, Woody took us through this as well. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So this is a passage again that we were taken through a few weeks ago. And this is just after Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the gospel. And they'd been warned, they'd been released, and they'd been ordered to stop talking about Jesus. To not preach about him anymore. And so they go back and they tell the other disciples what was going on. They tell them in particular about these warnings. And they're talking about amongst themselves about what they should do. And while they're together, they start to get an idea where this whole thing's going. They can see the persecution heating up and things coming down the pipe. So what did they do? They prayed for boldness to continue preaching. And along with that prayer for boldness was a prayer that God would stretch out his hand to heal others through them. It was a prayer that they might perform signs and wonders in Jesus' name. And so those signs and wonders begin to appear. We see them here in Acts 5. In addition to serving the big picture of authenticating the word ministry of the apostles, in the immediate context, we see this as an answer to the very prayer of the apostles only just uh, pr- prayed only just recently. Well, what was the effect of all this? What was the response to these amazing things that God was doing through the apostles? Surprisingly, it was mixed. Verses 12 to 14 describe two different responses. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Now the language here is potentially confusing, but it seems that when Luke refers to the people in verse 12, he's referring to the general public in Jerusalem, which would typically mean the unbelieving Jews in the city. Luke is saying then that many signs and wonders were done among the Jewish people by the apostles who were congregating at this location known as Solomon's Portico, which scholar tells us is on the eastern side of the temple's outer court, and presumably joining the apostles in this location as they ministered were those who had responded to their ministry of deed and word. And then we're told in verse 13 that none of the rest, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And I, which I think simply means this, that some of the people were responding to what they were seeing, hearing, and coming along, but the rest weren't. Nevertheless, even those who did not respond still respected what was being done, held the apostles in high esteem because of it. So again, a lot of people were coming and responding to their ministry message, but not everyone. The rest, who were unresponsive, not only did not come, the passage says they did not dare to come. For various reasons, most likely. Because they didn't, maybe, uh, didn't want to be on the bad side of the religious authorities whom they feared. Perhaps because while they appreciated some of the good things that were happening, they still didn't want to be identified 
as one of Jesus' disciples. Perhaps because they'd heard about what happened with Ananias and Sapphira just recently, which made them a little gun-shy about showing up amongst God's people. Whatever their reasons, there were different responses. Right? So think about that. Even with this clear evidence in front of them, there were mixed responses. The, the, the Jerusalem church, this good church, this effective church that had apostles leading it, mind you, was not universally successful. Was not universally even appealing. For every person they attracted, there were probably two or three or more that were keeping their distance from what was going on. So there's not a ton of things going on in these verses, and that's a statement about quantity, not quality, but I think there is enough here for us to pause and just reflect on what some of the implications uh, of all this might be for the church today. And really, I just want to, there's a few things I just want to draw your attention to. For one thing, it's worth thinking about this signs and wonders ministry that took place you know, in the early days of the church, and that isn't taking place today. Certainly not in the same way. I mean, that era, that stage of the church's life has come and gone because as we've seen the authenticating purpose for which the signs were given has been fulfilled. The word of the apostles was received immediately as they spoke it, and it has continued to be received immediately through the written word, that is, the New Testament, along with the Old Testament scriptures, of course. But that era, the signs and wonders, it's done its job, and it's come and gone. Nevertheless, there remains for God's people in this and every age a sign and a wonder to which we can point, and which not only authenticates our own message, it is in fact the message itself. What sign am I referring to? I'm referring to the sign of Jesus, his birth, his death, and specifically his resurrection. In Jesus, the sign and the thing signified come together. In Jesus, the deed becomes the word. And so this sign that we have to which we can point people is the greatest of all signs. And we know that because Jesus said so himself. Hear the words of Luke eleven twenty nine to 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus, with these words, was rebuking the people around him because he was right there. Jesus, the Lord, was right there, and they were saying, in essence, show us something more. We need a little bit more than just you. And so in response, it gives them two illustrations, both of which say the same thing, showing people who had responded rightly on the basis of far less evidence than the people had in Jesus' day. 
And in fact, here's the key. They responded entirely on the basis of what they'd heard. And not anything they had seen. The queen of the south is Sheba, the foreign queen who on the basis of hearsay, stories about Solomon's wisdom, packs her bags, makes this arduous journey to go and hear the wisdom of God from Solomon in person. The people of Nineveh, on the basis of Jonah's preaching, on the basis of this, just one prophet responded and they turned to God. The people in front of Jesus had experienced more than what was experienced in either of those examples. And they still wanted more. And Jesus said, nope. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Which meant two things. It meant the example of Jonah's experience with the people of Nineveh, but beyond that, it was a reference to himself and his upcoming death and resurrection. The three days of Jonah in the belly of the whale under the judgment of God was a shadow or a preview of coming attractions, a type of what Jesus was about to do under the the judgment of God for the sake of his people, only to emerge after three days gloriously in the resurrection. And so it is that the sign, the sign and the wonder, the sign which is completely sufficient and beyond which no other sign is necessary is the sign of the cross. The incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So we're not handicapped because we're not going around doing what the apostles did. We actually have the greatest possible sign to give and show to people. And surely this is an important message for the church in our day. You know, the world stands outside the church and says, give me an undeniable experience of God and then I will believe. And all too often, various segments of the church have given in to this way of thinking and offered all sorts of so-called signs and experiences and guarantees to try and meet the world's demand for additional proof. But the only sign, the only wonder we need is the cross. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Just as Sheba responded, the queen of Sheba responded to what she heard, just as the people of Nineveh responded to what they heard, we have every right to believe that people today will do the same when they hear us telling them about the sign of Jonah, the sign of the cross. Our job is to bring people face to face with the crucified and resurrected Lord and to leave them there to ponder that significance and the truth of that. Because if people do not respond to that sign, if they don't respond to the preaching of the gospel, then anything else we might give them is useless. If they do respond to the gospel, anything else we give them is unnecessary. The other thing I want to draw your attention to, and I've already said it, but let me just underline it for you, is simply this. Just as there were different responses to the apostles' ministry back in the day, you can expect the same thing to happen in the church today, in in the church in every age. Tim Keller talks about this uh, when he says that um, one of the characteristics, he says, of good, vital churches is that people stay away from them. One of the characteristics of vital churches is that people stay away. 
They might do that because they just flat out reject the message. They don't like what it says about people or about sin. They want to hear the truth. It's too unsettling. And so they stay away from the places where those truths are spoken. Or sometimes, Keller says, people might actually respect effective churches from a distance. They might like the way a church takes care of homeless people, for example. They might like the way a church uh, you know, it's provides services to the aged or the infirm or some other example. But they haven't embraced the message of that church. They don't hate it. They're just ambivalent to it. They like where the train is going, but they don't know what to think about the engine that is driving it. In Australia, for example, the churches in general, and, and Christian church is part of that, uh, they actually have done a great deal to provide facilities for the aged in a significant fashion, both in terms of quantity and quality. In fact, the Australian government at one point tacitly admitted that their dependence on the churches when it's uh, when it said that if the church was to suddenly stop providing aged care, the government would struggle financially and otherwise to make up the difference. And so they actually respect what the church does while not really endorsing at all the church's message. But that's the thing, you see. Good, effective churches get mixed reviews. They're responded to and attended, yes, but they're also hated, they are attacked, they are criticized, and they are avoided. To be sure, when people stay away and avoid the church, it may be because we're getting it wrong in one or many places and we need to look at those things. We need to address those things. But even when we're getting it right, even when we're getting it substantially right, people will still avoid and despise the church. In fact, if nobody is ever driven away by what your church says and does, it is a sure sign that you are getting it wrong. Good churches, says Keller, both repel and attract. And if that's true for the church as a whole, it's equally true for the individuals that are the church. Right? In other words, if, if you're his and you're trying to be faithful, your life and your beliefs will be attractive to some people. They'll be repulsive to others. And some people just won't know what to think of you. They'll be puzzled at best. But if that's a description of your life and people's response to it, take heart. It means you're normal. And finally, as Keller also notes from this passage very quickly, notice that people are bringing their sick friends and family to the church. They're bringing their sick friends and family to the church, not because they see, themselves in, they see themselves in any sort of superior light, but precisely because it is the place where they can find healing, it is the place where they can find hope. As the cliche goes, it's one beggar telling another beggar where she found bread. It's one person who's sick and struggling saying, this is the place where I got better. This is the place where I'm getting better. This is the rehab unit I was telling you about. You should come with me. See what the Lord Jesus will do. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you have given us the the beautiful, the stunning sign that is the cross. So, help us to have confidence that you knew exactly what you were doing. Help us to have confidence to actually point people to the cross, to the Savior, and to trust that you will work through that. You will work through the, the, what Paul even refers to as the foolishness of the gospel. And in, in some levels, in some ways, it seems crazy to point people to, and yet it is the most sane thing we know. So, Father, help us to trust your wisdom on that and not ours. Help us to be a place where that sign and that wonder is pointed to, is lived out in all of our imperfection, but to be the place where you are working within us, even as you have already claimed this is yours. Uh, Make it that kind of place. Make it the sort of place where we can invite others to say, this is where we found Help and hope in the Lord Jesus. We pray these things with confidence in you, uh, that you will work and you will expand your kingdom uh, even through us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a minute now to take up an offering for those who want to support this church or a number of different ministries that we we support together as a congregation. If you're visiting... um, We don't expect you to give. You're welcome to, but we don't expect you to do that. We're just glad that you're here with us.